America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Afghanistan's troubled past, perilous present, and prospects for the future. Our guest, Lieutenant General Sami Sadat, is a leader of the Afghan army who devoted his career to defending his nation and protecting the Afghan people from Taliban aggression. General Sadat grew up during the final years of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. At that time, Mujahideen fighters supported by the intelligence services of the United States Pakistan and Saudi Arabia fought against the Soviet army and the Soviet-backed Afghan government. In 1989, as Soviet troops departed and the Soviet Union began to collapse, support for the government in Kabul dried up. In 1992, a brutal civil war broke out after anti-communist Mujahideen militias unseated the last pro-Soviet leader, Mohammad Najibullah. Najibullah and his brother fled the Arg Palace and were granted sanctuary at the United Nations compound. During the Civil War, warlords and thugs preyed on the Afghan people with impunity. Former anti-Soviet allies turned on each other. They extorted the population and engaged in murder, torture, rape, and egregious child abuse. The Taliban pledged to end the chaos and criminality. In 1996, with Pakistani support, the Taliban took over Kabul. The Taliban leader, one-eyed cleric Mullah Omar, declared Afghanistan a completely Islamic state in which a complete Islamic system will be enforced. Omar purged the country of political opposition, which included ordering the brutal murder of Najibullah and his brother. The Afghan people wanted order, but the Taliban inflicted a new form of brutality on them based on a ruthless purity agenda. The Taliban arrested and jailed General Sadat's father, who had been an active member of the resistance to Soviet occupation and the Taliban. The Taliban gave safe haven to the terrorist group Al-Qaeda. After that organization conducted the most destructive terrorist attack in history against the United States on September 11, 2001, the United States military and intelligence agencies allied with Afghan anti-Taliban militias to unseat the Taliban from power by the end of that year. In 2005, after graduating from secondary school in Afghanistan, Sadat moved to Europe to study military operations. He completed the NATO Military Academy in Munich and the Polish Defense Academy's Battalion Command course. In 2011, he graduated from the Joint Services Command and Staff College at the Defense Academy of the UK, and he earned a master's from the UK Charter Management Institute the following year. General Sadat returned to Afghanistan and served at the Ministry of the Interior, the National Directorate of Security, the High Peace Council, the Afghan government's program under President Karzai to negotiate with representatives of the Taliban, and held multiple senior military positions. In August 2021, soon after General Sadat was appointed to command Afghan special forces, the security situation and the Afghan government collapsed concurrent with withdrawal of U.S. forces and personnel. 
the Taliban returned to power and reinstated their oppressive regime based on a perversion of Islamic law. The Taliban has segregated women and girls from public life and stripped them of many of their rights, including the ability to attend secondary school or hold most jobs. It restricts access to civil liberties and human rights. Reports from the United Nations describe extrajudicial killings, torture, arbitrary arrests, and forced marriages amidst the overall extinguishment of human freedoms. Tens of thousands of Afghans who served with the U.S. and coalition forces are still waiting on special immigrant visas to immigrate to the United States, and dozens of American citizens remain stranded in the country. The Afghan people face a dire combination of economic, security, and humanitarian crises, exacerbated and perpetuated by brutal Taliban rule. We welcome General Sadat to discuss his experiences, the state of affairs in Afghanistan, and prospects for the future of his country. General Sami Sadat, welcome to Hoover, welcome to Stanford University. It's a real privilege to host you here for Battlegrounds. Th thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, General McMaster. It's an honor and a privilege to sit down with you on this pod podcast. No, it's an honor for me to sit down with a fellow soldier who fought with such courage and uh, under the most difficult conditions one can imagine up to the last moment uh, in Afghanistan, which is heartbreaking for both of us and, and especially for you and your family who have borne the brunt of, uh, of the disaster in Afghanistan since, since August of, of 2021. I'd love to talk to you about, about a lot of things here. Uh, there's so much to talk about, but I thought we might just begin with the present, right? It's very hard these days because of the, the brutality and the, of, of the Taliban regime and the control they've exerted over the country to understand what's happening in the country now. Could you maybe explain to our viewers how you see the situation in Afghanistan today? So, General McMaster, brother, a couple of things that are seriously impacting the daily life of Afghans is one is the economy has completely collapsed, unfortunately. Second is the brutality of Taliban. Violence is in every single door. Violence is on the street, violence is in the school, violence is in the bazaar, in the marketplace. Everywhere you go, the Taliban come and beat people. They mess with people's um, how you look. Not only women, but actually men as well. Um, the harshest um, restrictions came on Afghan women. Uh, women are not allowed to go out of house without a male chaperone. Women are banned from education. Women are banned for working outside. Um, unfortunately, this is uh, one of the darkest things that in 2023 a nation can undergo. This is basically literally savagery in the modern era. I would say this is the lowest human point that anyone can get. Um, is the Taliban bringing the Afghan people into that point. Um, the third thing which can affect um, the rest of the world is really terrorism. Uh, General McMaster, I'm following um, some of the terrorism terrorist groups that are coming back. Um, 16,000 regional terror groups, um, uh, members of terror groups have moved into Afghanistan immediately after uh, the fall of Afghanistan into the Taliban. And then uh, throughout the last 19 months, I'm following like large number of um, Al-Qaeda members from North Africa, from Yemen, from Middle East, from Iraq, uh, moving to Afghanistan via Iran. And uh, some of them are bringing their families. And the fourth thing is really the Taliban are creating um, quite a hostile environment in our region. 
They already had fights with Pakistan, which was their master Taliban or literally puppet of Pakistan. But as soon as they took power, they kind of went after the Pakistanis. They had border clashes with Iran. They had border clashes with Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And it continues to be a very hostile um, environment. So this, one of the things that I say is uh, terrorism, and I, you, you know better than anyone else, is that terrorism does not remain consigned in one location. It, they tend to uh, go out and, and do things. In 1997, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan and they invited al-Qaeda, by 2001, al-Qaeda pulled 9-11. Um, uh, and if I can just, you know, in 1990s, there was a handful of al-Qaeda um, leaders in, in Afghanistan. It was people like uh, Abu Masab al-Zarqawi, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, Saif al-Adil, um, al-Zawahiri, um, bin Laden, and we know all of them worked for, but there was a handful of people and they managed to pull 9-11. Today, as you and I speak, there is 800 Al-Qaeda commanders in Afghanistan. These are more sophisticated. These are much more savvy with how to fight the United States and the rest of the world. And their battle hardened. So I, I believe the risk of Al-Qaeda today is much greater than it was in 2001. So really, what I'm drawing from your comments, two, two big consequences. One is humanitarian and the other is, is security related to the growth of, of jihadist terrorist strength uh, in Afghanistan. You know, one, of the, one of the elements of self-delusion as we talked ourselves into a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan and, and, uh, and so-called ending the endless wars. Of course, wars don't end when one party disengages. This war is, is continuing. But one of, the, one of the key elements of our self-delusion was the Taliban was separate in some way from other jihadist terrorist organizations, in particular Al-Qaeda uh, and, and, the, and the ISI, when in fact, it actually, you know, the, the, the Taliban depends on this relationship reconstituted with the help of Al-Qaeda and ISI uh, after 2001 to 2002. Could you maybe describe how these organizations are intertwined, for example, you know, the kind of unit that took over the Kabul airport after the U.S. withdrawal, which was an Al-Qaeda brigade, essentially. Can you just explain the nature of this enemy, how they're intertwined? Because I think we try just too hard to disconnect the dots between these organizations. Some of this is assumptions and others are politics, really. I mean, the intelligence community and the U.S. and Afghan military, we knew what was going on. I was leading a, a, a counterterrorism unit, a joint uh, CIA-Afghan intelligence task force that was targeting Al-Qaeda. And in 2017, Al-Qaeda has built up their um, first battle unit after a long time in Ghazni province, Afghanistan. And these were more people from uh, Punjab of India, Punjab of Pakistan, what they called themselves Al-Qaeda in Indian subcontinent. We began to realize that these this unit was particularly created to contribute uh, man into the battle formation of the Taliban. And they managed at some point, a, a year earlier, they have managed to take over the city of Ghazni and then the Al-Qaeda continued to support um, the Taliban in a much more sophisticated way and, and manner in Pakistan and Afghanistan. ISI was also supporting uh, both Al-Qaeda and Taliban in, in a manner that would hurt the Americans and Afghans enough so the Afghans and Americans would come to Pakistan and pay Pakistan. So war on terror uh, for us, for Afghans and Americans was real, but for Pakistan it was a sideshow to make money out of uh, what was happening. Unfortunately, 
um, lack of regional consensus have caused, and today Pakistan is in a very bad situation. I afra I'm afraid that if you know the world doesn't help Pakistan by in the next few years, uh, Pakistan will completely collapse and scrumble like Afghanistan. And the problem with that is we're a small nation. We're a nation of 39 million people. Pakistan is almost 300 million people. Pakistan is a nuclear-armed uh, nation. You know that it could have like really, really major global consequences. Today, as we speak, uh, Abdullah bin Laden, son of uh, bin Laden, is in Kandahar. He's married to a Kandahari woman. And uh, the beginning of uh, the Taliban that came to Afghanistan, Abdullah bin Laden was an advisor to Malaya Kub, and he was sitting with Malaya Kub. He was flying uh, with Malaya Kub in the helicopters, and he was known as the advisor. And after the Zawahiri strike, he was sent back to uh, Kandahar to hide there, and a lot of uh, other Al-Qaeda members that were roaming around Kabul, Ghazni, and uh, Logar and other provinces were also pushed down to West and southwestern Afghanistan, closer to the Iranian, Iranian border, of, uh, being afraid of the, the drone attacks. So in conclusion, um, there is no way you can separate the Taliban from Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda from Taliban. I think there is a degree of separation between ISI uh, and Al-Qaeda, perhaps a greater degree of separation today, um, and a, a smaller degree of separation between ISI and the Afghan Taliban. Of course, one of the people that really connects the, the Taliban with al-Qaeda is Siraj Haqqani. And I thought maybe you could talk about some of the people who are in the Taliban government and maybe describe even more why it's so dangerous to, to cede, to surrender to a, a, a terrorist organization and give them a nation state. Because, of course, it's Siraj Haqqani who's printing passports uh, for, uh, for terrorists who want to travel internationally, for example. And you mentioned how many terrorists from various organizations are going to Afghanistan, which is becoming a kind of a haven uh, for jihadist terrorists. For Sirajuddin Haqqani, the relationship with Al-Qaeda is generational. His father, Jalaluddin Haqqani, was a good friend of uh, Osama bin Laden. And his father was so close to Al-Qaeda that um, the Arab Al-Qaeda members um, have given um, him a daughter. Jalaluddin Haqqani married uh, a Yemeni woman. Um, uh, one of the mothers of Siraj, who's the mother of Anas Haqqani, if you know him. Anas's mother is from Anas Yemen. Anas is the one who had been imprisoned. It was imprisoned. Until the, the United States insisted that the Afghan government release him, along with 7,000 other terrorists, uh, after, you know, during the negotiation with the Taliban, which was really leading to a capitulation agreement uh, with the Taliban. Uh, this is the, the, the agreement that was signed in, for our viewers in, in February of 2020. Correct. So also with some other Taliban leaders, Al-Qaeda relationship is generational. Like there's a guy, his name is Fatullah Mansour. Fatullah Mansour is the son of Akhtar Muhammad Mansour, the former leader of Taliban. He's in charge of the Kandahar airport today, and he is the one who's taking care of senior Al-Qaeda members, people like Abdullah bin Laden, people like um, Osama Mahmoud, known also as Abu Zar, who's the leader of Al-Qaeda in Indian subcontinent and um, also some other senior Al-Qaeda leaders who are, who are in Kandahar. So it's, it, the relationship is now growing in a much more um, co cohesive, systematic, and effective way. Not only that, um, not only the Taliban are giving Al-Qaeda passports and ID cards, but actually they're paying them from the uh, Taliban MOD money. 
and the Taliban have taken over the consulate services in Beijing, in Moscow, in Tehran, in Islamabad, in UAE, and in Turkey. So I have no doubts that Al-Qaeda members will be using these consulates to connect with one another. And I saw in one of the videos that um, an Al uh, a Taliban delegation were meeting with Hamas, I think Ismail Khania in, in Turkey. So that is becoming a normal routine. And I, I, I don't know why it's okay. I, do, I don't know if I'm paranoid, I, I see this, or, or um, people don't care. These are dangerous people. These are the people that want to destroy the West, that they want to destroy uh, Saudi Arabia, they want to destroy Israel and other, other nations in the Middle East as well. These are some really, really bad people, and you and I have, have fought with them. This is not okay. This will create many more uh, bigger problems. I think uh, one, one of the elements here is the, is the perception of success and victory, right? When the Taliban was able to, to raise its flag over Afghanistan, just as ISIS was able to do over territory the size of uh, Great Britain after the complete U.S. withdrawal from Iraq in December of 2010. Of course, ISIS was in, in power uh, by, you know, by 2014. Uh, and attracted so many people. They raised an army of 60,000 people in a very short period of time. So I think you're right to point out the danger associated with this. One of the elements of jihadist terrorist strength you mentioned was financial strength. Could you maybe describe a little bit how the Taliban is able now to mobilize resources in support of jihadist terrorist organizations, their own, Al-Qaeda, uh, and others? So there is... Um so when we were fighting in Afghanistan against Al-Qaeda and Taliban, we denied Al-Qaeda time, space, and resources. So what the Taliban, um, after when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, what Al-Qaeda has today is space to freely operate, train, live, and plan, and they have the time on, on their side. Nobody is looking after them, nobody is going after them. And the Taliban victory has actually provided a much needed ambition. Al-Qaeda members have, throughout the years, have gotten tired. They were not, they couldn't talk to one another. They were small pockets across the world, you know, not being able to come under one organization, talk to each other, get the direction they needed. But today they have it. From North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan, they have a free pass. So a member of Al-Qaeda can easily travel from Kabul to Iran, from Iran they load on the ships and land in Somalia or, or in Yemen or in other parts of, um, parts of Africa. I'm following a trend of Al-Qaeda fighters now being channeled to go into Kenya and Somalia to attack the, um, the U.S. installation. One of the things that, brother, I've, you know, I've, I see that United States intelligence assessed that uh, Al-Qaeda does not have the capability to attack mainland United States. I agree with that. But what nobody talks about is Al-Qaeda has the capability to attack U.S. installations overseas. U.S. is not a country only bound to the mainland. As, as they did in the late 90s with the two U.S. embassies uh, at the Horn, in the Horn of Africa. Absolutely. So the U.S. is a global superpower, and, and if they can kill Americans in the Middle East and North Africa, is that okay? or the coal, uh, the USS coal, another example. You know, I, what I'd like to talk with you about uh, a little bit more even is, is, uh, is just the nature of the, that geographic area and how it's conducive and important to developing jihadist terrorist capability. One of the elements, one of the things we heard from the Biden administration is, well, you know, 
Afghanistan, Pakistan, it's not that important because jihadist terrorists are kind of everywhere now, like all the way across to the, to the Maghreb or, you know, or to West Africa. But the Khorasan region, could you explain to our, uh, to our viewers why this is a, a geographic and an ideological heart uh, of jihadist terrorism? So Afghanistan, first of all, is located in a very strategic vantage point that is connecting um, Central Asia to Indian Ocean, Middle East to uh, Southeast Asia. And, and it's uh, such an important corner of the world that connects many different uh, countries together. And there's been um, ideological wars before, unfortunately, with the rise of communism, um, you know, nations stood against communism in the name of the religion, so the banner of Islam, and it, it made um, the religion of Islam, the practice of Islam, uh, much more violent than it actually is. So it kind of is the legacy of Soviet Union in invading Afghanistan. Geographically, Afghanistan is a very territorial ground, so for anyone who wants to um, hide or train or um, you know get prepared for um, right. attacks in Middle East, North Africa, Europe, or America. Afghanistan is the best place to um, to go. Uh, we're a, a land-connected country, and we don't have uh, any um, neighbors that um, um, that are um, capable enough to actually help with uh, you know countering extremism. So. In 2001, the United States took over fighting violent extremism, Al-Qaeda and Taliban. And once the United States withdrew in 2021, nobody was prepared for it. Actually, not only nobody was prepared, but actually some countries benefited from it. Um, Iran, Pakistan, and other countries, they benefited from extremist organizations coming back to Afghanistan because Afghanistan did become a democracy. It, you know. Um, brought a lot of civil liberties that many people saw Afghanistan as an inspiration in our neighborhood, like Central Asia, Iran, Pakistan. Many people envied us, and they wanted to be like that. And so it was a kind of a risk for this political systems around us, and this is why it became conducive for people, for uh, organizations like Al Qaeda and Taliban, um, to grow. Al Qaeda and Taliban are a problem for us today, but they inspire many, many other organizations and networks uh, across the world. That's why a victory for the Taliban in 2021 was a victory for all jihadist terrorist organizations. They all celebrated it together. Uh, Pakistan celebrated it together uh, with, with, uh, with, the, with the Taliban. And so I, you know, I'd, I'd like to maybe shift a little bit to the past and talk about what's gonna be the most difficult subject for us to talk about, which is really what I regard as our self-defeat uh, in, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, I, I, we had this uh, recent release of the Biden administration's National Security Council after action review on, on Afghanistan, uh, which was a new low, I think, a astonishing to me uh, in, in its inaccuracy and its blatant effort to escape responsibility. Responsibility that I would say is shared across multiple administrations, especially the latter end of the Trump administration. But could you just in general terms maybe uh, talk about why and how the collapse happened from your perspective? I think the greatest principle that caused the collapses was the Doha Agreement. The Doha Agreement not only destroyed us politically, but it actually had practical implications on the ground. When the Doha Agreement was signed, I was 
commander of uh, Joint Special Operation um, for our um, special forces in Afghanistan. And by 27th of February, the United States uh, halted 98% uh, of its airstrikes over the Taliban um, positions. Our Air Force was small. Um, it was not enough to, um, no. to respond to that. The second thing was uh, the United States government pushing our government to release um, 7,000 Taliban prisoners. Yeah. And some of these prisoners have killed countless civilians. Some of them killed Afghan soldiers. And I know prisoners who killed Americans. Yes. And they were released. And Australians. And Australians, Canadians. Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. And they were released based on the United States pressure, not only recommendation, mm -hmm. but it forced our government to release them. The third thing really was, which had a devastating blow was militarily, was to hold, hold back the arms shipment to the Afghan military and remove the Afghan um, combat logistical support, which was coming from the, the US. The contracted uh, maintenance and sustainment support. Yeah. So all of that was taken away without informing us on time. And all three, three of these came from the politicians, not from the US generals. The US generals would tell Washington that this is going to have implications and this is what it's going to happen. They said, no, just, just do it. So I think um, politicians have, across the board, our politicians and American politicians have self-defeated the United States military and also our military. Yeah, yeah I'll tell you, what's, what's heartbreaking to me is, uh, is the shift uh, since August of 2017. I, I became National Security Advisor in February of that year. And really, pr at the time, President Trump was predisposed toward just, just getting out of Afghanistan. But I think what our team did effectively, the national security team broadly, uh, was to show what that looks like. This is what happens if there's a complete U.S. disengagement. And what we described to President Trump in 2017 was really exactly what happened uh, in, in, the, in the late spring and summer of, of 2021. Once he looked over that precipice, he said, okay, well, maybe we should consider another option, which became the South Asia strategy, which took the timeline off our commitment, which really continued Afghan forces taking the brunt of the fight uh, against, against the Taliban, but providing much better and more responsive support under rules of engagement that acknowledged the Taliban was the enemy. Yes. And, and I, could you describe how the, the fight went from that decision 2017 until the period in 2019 when to get the agreement we began to reduce our air support, reduce our active intelligence collection and targeting of the Taliban. If I can go a little bit back, um, General, um, 2009, um, when Obama took office, I think one of the problems that created was this United States um, lack of desire and lack of clarity whether or not the U.S. is going to stay in Afghanistan or not, and it this was. Is, this is December 2009 when he, when he announced his at the end of his review, he announced a reinforced security effort, but at the same time announced the timeline for the withdrawal of U.S. forces. Yes. So I I, th I think from that day onwards we really struggled as Afghan government to come up with something that is um, long term that has longevity that has the guarantee of our coalition support that has um, enough um, assets um, that we can use against uh, for war against terrorism. I think that 
populist moves by President Obama and then by Vice President Biden back then has really, really um, killed our progress uh, from that day onwards. We were some of our mega projects for, um, you know, um, creating Afghan Air Force, you know, um, looking into the Afghan Special Forces to increase numbers and equipment were halted because of the lack of interest on, on the U.S. side. When the South Asia strategy was announced, um, I, I believe you, you were the pioneer of the South Asia strategy. For the first time, the Taliban has seen, um, after a long time, the brunt of how the United States will fight if they choose with political will and, and enough military capabilities. Although by 2017, there was not a lot of US soldiers. Um, right. I believe there was um, 10,000, 15,000. That's right, between 10 and 15, about 12,500 around the time of the decision. Yeah, that, that's oh. not a, 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 a big number, but Afghan forces would fight on the ground. The United States would provide the air support. We completely destroyed um, Al-Qaeda's fighting capability in Ghazni and in uh, Gomal, Paktika, uh, Khost, and in Helmand. At that time, Al-Qaeda had fighting capability in, in those areas. By 2019, we really, really you know, studied the whole of Afghanistan, and then people like me came a little bit, became general officers, uh, general a, a, new, a new generation of officers, really. You know? The generation of officers that went to school with Americans, you know, studied with Americans, was trained with Americans. We had everything that an American officer had in terms of skill, but coupled with our local knowledge. So it right. it was really effective. And, and and you didn't have your loyalty was to the country rather than to Mujahideen era elites. Yeah, we were apolitical. We 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 loved democracy, we fought for our country, and we were brothers with, uh, with American soldiers. So it really changed the battleground. By 2019, and uh, General Danaho and I um, partnered, General Dan Chris Danaho at the time was uh, commander of uh, NATO Special Operation Command Afghanistan. I became commander of Joint Special Operation uh, for uh, Afghan side, and together, uh, from January 2019 until December 2019, we destroyed 11 out of 14 Taliban red units. And the Afghan MOD, together with other forces, we captured 12 districts out of 24 districts that were with Taliban. We were doing so well. And General Danaho and I, I remember we sat down uh, in CSAR, Combined Situational Awareness Room, and we said, okay, fine. This was the first year the Afghans and Americans worked in an integrated manner, joint intelligence, joint asset allocation, and joint um, you know, targeting um, as well. We would do the ground targeting, night raids, and the Americans would provide um, air support and intelligence. So I said, in the next two years, um, we can effectively destroy the Taliban's fighting capability. In 2019, we also destroyed the Taliban uh, customs, and so they had four customs that gave them a lot of revenues. We destroyed two of the four customs. So we were doing so well, and all of a sudden, this uh, in February 2020, we heard about this Doha agreement. It was unbelievable. It was as if like someone just shot his own foot, and for no reason. Like We were doing so well, the American uh, soldiers were not going outside into the battle. They were protected, they were safe, but they were very effective to take the back seat and provide support for the Afghan forces. I think that then not only you know 
cause the morale, but actually continuously the Taliban. I, I believe the Taliban got hundreds of millions of dollars from government of Qatar, and Pakistanis opened up their big military compounds and trained them and equipped them. If you see some of the pictures that the Taliban are pouring into some of the Afghan cities, all kitted, new weapons, you know, boots right. and everything. Right. Taliban were not like that before the Doha agreement. No, and there's this myth, right, that the Taliban was some sort of rural movement. You know, the, the people who have a romantic feelings for the Taliban, you know, that they, that they came out of the mountains organically. Uh, it's quite clear from the way that these units have been trained and equipped uh, that, uh, that, that they, are, they, they have allies uh, in the form of Al-Qaeda, the ISI, and, and of course funding that, that comes from sources of funding in the, in the Gulf in particular. You know, I, I wondered if you might talk a little bit more about the psychological effect of these various blows, right? So we, you're at a high point sort of in 2019 from your perspective, uh, and then you have uh, Ambassador Zal Khalilzad is sent by the Trump administration uh, to negotiate what really became, in my view, you know, a, a capitulation agreement uh, with the Taliban. Um, and the first blow was not to include Afghans in that negotiation, to shut out the Afghan government, which of course delegitimizes that government to a certain extent. Uh, we talked about the other blows that were delivered in the forms of, of, of uh, withdrawing air support, not actively targeting the Taliban. Um, forcing the Afghan government to release 7,000 of some of the most heinous uh, people on, on earth. Um, and, and then the, these restrictions on, on, on supplies and so forth. Can you talk about the psychological effect of that in context of war being a contest of wills fundamentally, the effect it had on, on Afghan forces fighting power, but then how the Taliban took advantage of that and what the message that, that they then brought to regional commanders and corps commanders and, and units uh, in advance of, of the collapse that we saw uh, in, in 2021? So three things. The first thing that it really um, destroyed was Afghan and U.S. Uh, partnership. I believe Afghan and U.S. soldiers operated as close as there is any other uh, nation that is allied to the United States. We loved each other like brothers. We trusted each other. We we watched for each other, when, and we were effective on the battleground. The first thing that it destroyed was the trust between the partners, Americans and Afghans, because the Afghan um, you know, soldiers would get into a fight with the Taliban, and they would call airstrike. The American airplane would come and not bomb, because it was not allowed to bomb the Taliban under the banner of saying, give peace chance. So reduction in violence gave peace a chance. So General Miller had to call Khalilzad, a civilian, to say like, hey, the Taliban attacked in Zabul and they're killing Afghan soldiers. Khalilzad be like, hold on, do not strike. Let's give peace a chance. Let me talk to uh, Shaheen on the Taliban side. And hey, you know, your guys are attacking. No, General Miller wants to strike them. I told them to hold on. Can you tell your guys to back off, and Shaheen would be like, oh, I, I'm not in touch with them, and that, that's all of that, and after an hour or so, all the Afghan soldiers would be slaughtered, as the American plane, the pilot saw it, we saw it, everyone in the screen saw it, and, and then the next checkpoint, and the next, and then the Afghan soldiers is like, wow, there is some kind of conspiracy. There, this is the U.S. aircraft, and these are the Taliban killing us, and the U.S. aircraft is not authorized to strike them. So it kind of destroyed our, our trust between the partners. I had difficult time making our soldiers understand that this is not a conspiracy. There is a political deal. Unfortunately, this is how 
it works. The second thing was really the role of Khalil Zad in destroying the Afghan cohesion from within. Uh, not only um, uh, uh, during the negotiation, Afghan government was not present, but after when Khalilzad went to President Ghani and President Ghani didn't really, you know, listen to him carefully, he would go uh, to other Mujahideen leaders, to the warlords, and encourage them to, yeah. you know, uh, stand against President Ghani. This and is, you know, famously uh, Karzai and, and Abdullah Abdullah, probably two very two, you know, significant figures who were undermining the Ghani administration uh, actively uh, with, I think, really kind of a State Department plan to try to put together a coalition government in their dreams that included the Taliban. This was a, this was a pipe dream. I mean, it's astounding to me that anybody could even think that this I was, was that the Taliban would, would share power, right? I mean, it's... I, I, I was stunned because there was zero plan for transition. There was zero plan for coalition. It was the assumptions in Khalilzad's head, but practically there were no plans. Even if we're transitioning, there should be a plan on how to do it. And I mean, it was shameful towards the end of the war, um, Secretary uh, Blinken would pick up the phone and call President Ghani to resign. Yeah. He didn't do it once or twice, he did it three times. And of course, it, this, President Ghani is the person who's now been blamed, uh, I think in ways that are defamatory and not, you know, of course, there are things that he could have done better. There are things that many other Afghan leaders could have done better, but could you maybe talk, and this is difficult, um, you know, to even bring up, but there has been a, a tendency on the part of, of Americans, uh, the Biden administration, particularly in this last, you know, this after action re review, uh, to blame the Afghans, to blame uh, Afghan soldiers, to accuse them of cowardice in the face of the enemy, or to blame uh, Afghan officials for avarice and prioritizing their own financial well-being over the good of the country. And of course, we know there were problems over these years with corruption and criminalized patronage networks and, and, uh, and, and failure to reform, uh, especially within the Ministry of Interior, for example. But, you know, but could you place that in context, those problems in context of this narrative that it was the Afghans who didn't have the will to fight uh, or whose leaders sold them out? So I can speak on behalf of the soldiers. We fought and we fought very, very hard. Over the course of war, we lost 200,000 Afghan soldiers, uh, and we lost countless civilians. Uh, we fought as, as much as we could. But a soldier cannot fight if you don't give them the ammunition, if you don't provide them air support, if you don't uh, get them fuel, or if towards the end of the war, we had zero ground artillery ammunition. Towards the end of the war, we had zero precision-guided rockets for our Air Force. Um, I know I was fighting in southwestern Afghanistan in Helmand province. I didn't have air support. I didn't have um, um, like heavy weaponry, artillery, and all that. All I had was M4 and other small arms that I fought. But even with that, we protected the city of Lashkargah, which the Taliban wanted to take Lashkargah first. Uh, but they f we fought for four months, they couldn't take it. Not only they couldn't take it, they were defeated in Lashkargah. Some 3,500 Taliban were killed. A lot of Pakistanis, a lot of others that they came um, got killed. And there's uh, National Geographic was with me on the battlefield. They filmed it, and there's a film about it called the documentary film Retrograde. Um, if you see it, you will know. It's a powerful film. Yeah, yeah so Afghans fought, and Afghans fought hard. And 
I want to make sure people know that we were not only fighting the Taliban, we were fighting um, 23 different terrorist organizations. We were also fighting the proxy war of Pakistan and Iran. By the way, they wanted to fight the U.S. So not only we fought our own enemies, but we also fought the United States enemies. N many of them are known, others are unknown, we, we don't know. Um, but we were left alone. It was the politics that, um, that killed us completely and that actually brought the, the failure to us. Just like anywhere else, Afghanistan was also a democracy. We listened to our leaders and we followed their lead. President Ghani um, was incompetent in many ways and w we didn't like President Ghani. Personally, I myself didn't like him. We had many encounters and terrible and bad encounters. Um, but he was under-resourced. He was not well-resourced. I think a ring of uh, some super bad people came around him and they mismanaged a lot of the things that, um, that, were, um, that could have been better, uh, better managed. But the question is, who brought President Ghani? President Ghani is as much of an American as much he is an Afghan. He was a Johns Hopkins professor for uh, 30 years. I don't know. He grew up in America. He studied in America. And he was forced on us by President Obama. Uh, Dr. Abdullah won the, um, the elections, but because he's our guy, you know, they pushed him. And, and now it's like, OK, we will take responsibility. But we also want the US to, to take some responsibility and to bring some accountability. I would like to see Khalilzad being investigated and questioned. Mm -hmm. It's like, why it happened? Khalilzad is talking to Sirajuddin Haqqani and many Taliban leaders today. These are terrorists. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, I think really that this effort, this diplomatic effort to engage the Taliban really helped fragment Afghanistan further along the lines of Ghani, you know, who's a Gilzai Pashtun versus the old Northern Alliance and Abdullah Abdullah when in fact, I think there was an opportunity over many years to focus diplomatic efforts more internally to help Afghans come together uh, around a common vision for the future that could transcend these sub-identities. Not that Afghanistan was ever gonna become you know, uh, free of contention or, 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 you know, or, or completely homogeneous, or, 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 but, but I think what could be agreed on is that you know, life would be hell under the Taliban and that they needed to cooperate with one another Instead, uh, I think Ambassador Khalilzad played them against one another to weaken um, President Ghani, against whom he had a personal feud as well, uh, which, is, which is, I think, uh, even, even worse. So I, I, I'd like to ask you, you know, what, what you would say uh, about the future of the country, right? So we've, you know, you hear people today, and this actually makes me even sometimes physically ill to hear it. We have to engage the Taliban about the future of Afghanistan. Well, I mean, we know what their vision for the future of Afghanistan is, right? It's, it's the 14th century is their, is their vision for the future. So really, what is, what is an Afghan vision for the future that's different from that of the Taliban? And what are your ideas about what could be done over the long term uh, to, to begin to reverse you know, the, the situation and the, the hell uh, to, into which uh, Afghanistan has descended uh, after the collapse in 2021? So I would say a couple of things. First of all, uh, General, and you've been to Afghanistan several times, Afghanistan is not the Afghanistan of the 90s. 73% of Afghans are under the age of 30 years old. These are the people who grew in a democratic, free, 
uh, society with civic rights. They have been educated, they travel the world, and this is a completely different um, nation than we were in the 90s or in the 80s. This generation refused to accept the Taliban. And they're not accepting the Taliban as their legitimate rulers. We will defeat the Taliban. We will fight the Taliban. It's our country. Um, we lost it because of um, a deception, a strategic deception. Unfortunately, our biggest ally fall into that strategic deception as well. Of course, we were not, uh, we didn't have the, the right leadership to fight the Taliban without the United States um, help at that time and day. But this is a disaster that opened a new opportunity for people like of my generation that, okay, you know what? We have to plan everything according to what works and what we see should work for our nation and go back and, and fight for our liberty. This is exactly what we will do. We will go back and free our country. We will bring Afghan uh, people in around the table again, make Afghanistan the home of every Afghan. Um, and then, you know, lead Afghanistan into um, prosperity. There's no other option to this. If you want to just remain as it is, young people are as much as an asset, but they're also a liability. The Taliban has started a mass re-education system for all these young generation that I uh, spoke about, the generation that socially have transformed completely. They want to re-educate them again into this violent extremism and use them as suicide bombers, as uh, like violent people around the world. So this is this is the alternative. Which is which is I would just say it's a form of child abuse on industrial scale. It it is, and, and we've seen it happen in 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 Waziristan, in, in Baluchistan, in areas in Pakistan where these madrasas were generating suicide bombers, and and of course, Sirajikani. The Minister of Interior gave a speech in, in Helmand last year where he bragged about the thousands of adolescents he had sent to their deaths yeah. as, as murderers and suicide bombers. Absolutely. Also, we have to look Afghanistan not only as a terrorism problem, but as a strategic vantage point in our world. Afghanistan is located in one of the most strategically important locations of today's world. We are in the middle of four atomic powers between Russia, China, Pakistan, maybe Iran, if they have a nuclear weapon. We are surrounded by 70% of global population. So China, India, uh, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, these are huge, gigantically populated nations. Then Afghanistan also has some of the Afghanistan is one of the richest countries in terms of resources in our world today. In terms of you know, strategic power competition between the US and China, what happened is now China has the entire Afghan resources. They got the contract for oil and gas, they got the contract for lithium, they're getting the contract for uranium, and it's, we're neighbors with China, so they could when they're competing with the United States strategically, guess where are the resources coming from? From Afghanistan. So I think the idea of leaving Afghanistan was utterly short-sighted. And I believe that um, the decision to just leave Afghanistan and see it as it happened um, was President Biden has a personal vendetta against Afghans. I don't know what it is. But he also self-defeated the United States. Look what happened after Afghanistan. Ukraine followed, 
Taiwan followed. And the whole region is reshaping and re, you know, revolving relations with one another, whereby the United States does not exist in that anymore. So the influence of the US has completely dried down in our region uh, of the world because of what happened. You know, countries around the world now are very doubtful about the US because the US and Afghans were very close and you know, it came to an end and it came to a disastrous end. So what I would say this is the United States could help us to go back, take our country. And this is such a globally vantage point, not only from extremism and per terrorism perspective in terms of the mineral wealth, in terms of the geographical, geopolitical location that we have. And I would like to see Afghanistan play a much more positive and a much more powerful role in that part of the, the, the world because Afghans are smart, they're capable, they're loyal, and they're good warriors, and they're good business people as well. You know, I think there has to be a recognition that if you want to support the Afghan people from a humanitarian perspective, you have to do that as, as someone who's anti-Taliban because the, the political and ideological order that they've put into place uh, will continue to stifle human freedom and victimize the, the Afghan people. You know, one of the other myths that I often heard is that you know that um, that we had to withdraw from Afghanistan because you know the the Afghans are such good fighters. And what I would try to point out is that the Afghans are fighting with us against the Taliban mm -hmm. and their their jihadist terrorist allies and their ISI patrons. And uh, and I think that fundamental misframing of this graveyard of empires narrative uh, was one of the myths that that led to this mantra of en endless wars. Another one we've talked about is the idea that. You know, Afghanistan's not Denmark yet, so therefore we failed. Well, Afghanistan really didn't need to be Denmark. It needed to be on a path toward reform and strengthening, but it needed a, a government in power uh, that was fundamentally anti-Taliban and on a path to reform. So we've talked about, about so much. I'd like to offer you kind of the, the last word and an effort to, to kind of sum up here. You know, I think we have been the victims of self-delusion over many years on Afghanistan. We've talked about the elements of that, and clearly with this after-action report, that self-delusion continues. What other message would you give to Americans on, you know, how we can support the future of a country, which you've mentioned, not only the withdrawal created a humanitarian crisis, it created a security crisis in terms of strengthening jihadist terrorist organizations who are the, who are the enemies of all civilized people, but you also mentioned the geostrategic consequences associated with other countries hedging based on a perception of U.S. unreliability. I'm thinking of, of India, for example, yeah. who's been hedging with Russia even after the brutal invasion of, of Ukraine because it feels like it needs Russia to protect or to hedge against the threat from China and Pakistan. So I think there, it's unleashed a lot of dynamics that are important to, to just geostrategic considerations and long-term security interests. But what else would you say to our viewers about not just the consequences, but now how to mitigate these, these terrible and, and significant negative consequences of what I would call the stain of 2021? So I would say three things. First of all, thanks to the American citizens who stood by Afghans in those dark days when the United States politics f failed us, it was the people of America who stood up and showed why Americans are different, why Americans are better than the others um, by standing normal citizens, veterans, people like yourself, 
they, I remember you called me and said, Sami, do you need anything? I mean, when the administration has completely shut us down, it was the American people who stood by us, who helped us in those dark and difficult times. So we're grateful and we thank you for that. The second thing I would say is um, America needs to get its politics right. It's always about the military. We need to you know, make the military more counter-terrorism oriented or we, we need to come up with a big navy against the China or we, we need to do um, some uh, asymmetric warfare. Now I see like irregular warfare. And that is not the problem. The United States military is quite capable. What America is missing is also to poise the posture of its politics. Wherever you send the US military, they will deliver you success. The US military is the greatest and the most powerful military in the world. But it's the politics that times and times again costs you know, failures after failures. It's the short-sighted um, politics of poking the, the areas where they shouldn't be poking and not following up with it. So I, I want to offer this, like, you know, let's look at, you know, you're American, I'm a foreigner, I'm not American, and I do not allow myself to give you advice on how to run politics, but I believe from where I sit and watch, it's the U.S. politics that is failing the United States, not the U.S. Uh, military. The third thing I would say is um, we want to continue our partnership with Americans. Uh, we need your help. Uh, we helped you uh, when 9-11 happened. You, you guys came to Afghanistan, asked us to join against Al-Qaeda and Taliban. We not only, which was in our interest, by the way, as well, but we also went beyond our limitations to fight anyone who was against the United States. So now we need your help, and we need a little bit of help uh, with this new generation of Afghan leaders to take back um, our country and change it once and for all. Well, General Sammy Sadat, thank you for joining us on Battlegrounds and helping us understand that Afghanistan is still a battleground that's very important to the, our future, the future of our children and, and, and grandchildren. Thank you for your service and your courage and your perseverance and your efforts now to, to help create opportunities for a different future uh, for future generations of, of Afghans. Real pleasure to be with you. Thank you, General. I appreciate it. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.